a field being bought. <laughs> well, there is a, there's a little bit of a method to my madness here, so hang, hang with me. Um, thank you, worship team. It was just wonderful this morning, and, <clears throat> and I'm so glad, so glad we don't have a cage around the drums. I mean... <laughs> Some churches put cages around the drums to soften it. Man, I'm all for it. I think that's, I, I think that's, I love hearing the drums. So, I do want to, to uh, just emphasize again the, the congregational meeting tonight. It is important. We are going to go over some new things and kind of want to give you a direction of, of our, where we're headed for, as a church. And, uh, and also, we're supposed to do this once a year, according to our bylaws. We are a little behind schedule. Um, for various reasons, and hopefully it'll become a little clearer. Uh, Jill's trying to get traction here after the lockdowns and COVID and stuff, but we're starting to get back on track here. So I encourage you to come and uh, feel free to ask questions, and uh, we'll be presenting some things and um, for your information, and, and just also just to be transparent. It's very important that we be transparent with the congregation of where the money goes and you know all those kind of uh, kind of things. So. I want to ask you to put that on. If you can make it tonight, that would be great. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you have loved the world so much that you sent your Son to save it, to save us. And Father, we're asking this morning that may, as we, uh, as we look at our congregation this evening especially, may your mission, may the mission of Jesus be our mission. May his compassion move us to live beyond ourselves. May his great commission be reignited in our souls today. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for making our lives part of your story. We thank you for making uh, Shepherd of the Valley part of your story. And we ask that you remind us of all the ways that you continue to have an impact on the world and an impact on our lives we ask that you give us opportunities to share that story with others. We pray for the creative ways to share stories through art and word and actions and music or jokes or kindness or empathy, just any ideas that Jesus asks you to make those sparks in us. That they may be radically creative and effective and that we can beautifully communicate your love and your truth. Father, keep us from the fear of making mistakes. Keep us from the, the fear of, of maybe blowing it so that we keep our mouths shut. But, Father, open our mouths. Give us courage to step out. Father, remove any kind of desire that we may have to just to try to fit in or impress other people. But we just ask that you let us be simply real and simply honest with those we meet. May your words and life in our life point to you that we are empowered by your spirit and it is a spirit of truth and beauty and compassion and we ask this in Jesus name amen you know americans really like to think of our we like to think of ourselves as being very practical people uh, we like to be practical we think practicality is actually a virtue and we should should celebrate that virtue uh, we, we, in fact, if we call something or someone impractical, it's almost an insult. Uh, if we say somebody, oh, they're so impractical, or that what, you buy something that was so impractical. In other words, you wasted your money, you wasted your time, or that person's got their head in the clouds, 
and um, uh, just really not got both feet on the ground. And we sort of do that as an insult. And uh, I lived in, my wife is from the Midwest. We lived there for a few years after we came back from the mission field. And, and if there's anybody that's down to earth, they're the Midwesterners. I mean, their feet are firmly planted. And that's, I mean, that is a good thing. They are, they are really, when people say they're salt of the earth, they are salt of the earth. And, uh, and Garrison Keeler talks about his Midwestern roots quite a bit. And he kind of jokes about it. He says, you know, Midwesterners are just very conscious. They don't want to overstay their welcome with anybody. They don't want to intrude on anybody. And he says, I just know that when the Midwesterners go to heaven, the first thing they're going to say is, we can't stay long, you know. <laughs> and, and he says, uh, he talks about, uh, you know, buying a car or something like that. They don't want to waste money. They want to make it very practical. And so a guy buys a car, buys a new car, and all the neighbors want to look at it. And he will be quick to tell them, you know, but it's, it's so practical. And I got such a great deal on it, you know. Don't want anybody to think that they overspent their money or anything like that. They're just very, very, very down to earth. And we Americans feel like we have made our mark on the world by being practical. We're practical. We, we're quick to do things. We don't want to waste time. We don't want to waste money or energy. We want to get it done. We want to make it happen. And all that is kind of, it's part of our, our ethos here in America, except maybe Washington, D.C., but, in, uh, but normally we want to make, make sure things get done and we want to do that quickly. Uh, and Christians also take pride in being very practical people. In fact, it's almost synonymous with being biblical. And if we want to say, well, yeah, the Bible is really very, very practical. And as a preacher, I want to preach sermons that are very practical. I want to deal with sermons that, are real, that have things to do with real life and not just some you know, deeper theological abstract ideas. I want sermons to be practical. The confusion happens when we ask, what is practical? And that's where it comes in. It says, well, for some, for some people, this, you know, a, a, a fruit dryer may be very practical. For others, it would just take up place in the cupboard. Uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld has a stand-up routine where he talks about everything that we own is just in a different phase of becoming garbage. And he talks about it moving, you know, you get it out, you buy it, or you get it from Amazon, and, and then it gets, then you don't use it, and it gets in a cupboard or a drawer or something like that, or then it gets into the garage, and he says, once it gets in the garage, it never comes back in the house. And uh, so we kind of embarrass about that because we're not very practical in that. But the idea is, it, the question is, what is practical? Well, Jeremiah was one of those really practical people. Uh, he believed his ideas, his beliefs. His sermons, everything were very, very practical. He believed that creation is good and that it is meant to operate and function in a certain way. And when it is not, when it does not operate in a functional way, it is an offense to God. It is offensive to Him. Uh, when people are, not, or people are acting poorly or badly, then it is offense to God. Uh, Jeremiah says this phony worship is an offense to God. It's, a, it's just a replacement of the real devout love and faith you're supposed to have. And he says that's, that is an offense to God. He said creation is meant to be good, but yet it is contaminated and is crippled when, when the poor and the afflicted are exploited or ignored. And he says that's, that's an offense to God. But Jeremiah builds his things on reality. He is very practical. And it is practical because it is built on belief. It is built on faith. He argues that, that if you people who want to try to be good without God, it's just a, it's just a futile effort. If you're going to be a good person, you need, you need God. You need to have a good life. You need God. And if you don't recognize Him, 
you're pretty much de- detached from reality. Um, let's see. Here we go. Uh, we're going to look at this morning the practice of hope. And I think Jeremiah gives us a great model for what it means and what it looks like to practice, to practice hope. Uh, he pleads in, in Jeremiah chapter 3, which, which Scott did not read, but it's in the very first of the book. He says, The cry is heard on the barren heights, the weeping and the pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord their God. Come back, you wondering children, and I will cure you of your atrocities. And what is happening is, in Jeremiah's time, is that Babylon has been in, in kind of bothering and kind of fighting Israel for quite some time. Okay, And uh, finally, <clears throat> uh, Babylon is, is getting ready to take over because Israel has had enough and they want to fight back. And so they kind of enter into an alliance with Egypt. Egypt gets involved and then realizes, hey, we don't have, there's not a lot of a good that's going to come out of this. So they withdraw, kind of like things happen today. And so when they withdrew, Babylon marched in and quickly took over, took over the city, sacked the city, and you began some of the darkest times in Israel's history. And that's what's happening here. And in Jeremiah's mind, the city is plundered and that God wants to use this to redeem Israel, to heal the land, not destroy it. And so he's, he's very practical. Jeremiah doesn't do any of this I told you so kind of stuff. He's not really interested in just predicting the future and saying, what a good guy I am. I'll see how well I'm, I'm, how wise I am. I can predict the future. It's none of that stuff. His, 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 his idea, his ministry was very, very practical. He, is, he wants to focus on the purposes of God, and he wants, to, he wants things to change. He's thinking that, that God can enter the present, the present that looks futile, and make it and bring with it the light of hope. And that's where he's getting at. And so he, he, uh, he goes on. He says, the Lord says, the people of Israel who survived death at the hands of the enemy will find favor in the wilderness as they journey to, the re- to find rest for themselves. In a far-off land, the Lord will manifest himself to them. He will say to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and that is why I have continued to be faithful to you. Judgment happens when God's love meets injustice, and that's when, that's when judgment happens. And these are not the words of, of a cold court case, uh, anything like this. This, this, isn't the, this, this. These aren't words of revenge that God is talking about. These these are words that come from the sadness of a parent's heart. And he goes on in, in the same chapter, I will rebuild you, my dear children, Israel, so that you will once again be built up. Once again, you will take up the tambourine and join the happy throng of dancers. And the end of this, near the end of this chapter, he says, Oh, Ephraim, my dear son, the child in whom I delight, Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have a great compassion for him, declares the Lord. These are words that come out of the burden, out of the sadness of the the heart of a parent. This is not revenge. This is not just wrath. This is is judgment, an act of love that he comes out with his parents. And so what he does, Jeremiah is a very unpopular guy because he's preaching against this. In fact, they think he might be in cahoots with Babylon, but he's not. So they throw him in prison, and he, he, he's in prison, but evidently he's able to have visitors, and he gets visited by this cousin, uh, Hanamel, and, and Hanamel comes to him and says, hey, I want you to buy my, my property in, in Anathoth, and he says, okay, I'll buy it, 
He doesn't say, uh, well, he doesn't hem all around and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do you want me to buy this worthless piece of land? Because the reality says that the Babylonians are camped in that land. They're there. I have no hope of really getting out of prison. Uh, the land, I will probably never plant vineyards there. I will probably never plant olive trees there. Why should I buy this per worthless piece of land? I may be a preacher, but I'm not stupid. Okay? He didn't say that. What he did do was get together 17 shekels of silver, get some witnesses. He bought it, had the deed signed, all that stuff. He puts it in a safe place, and he buys this land. And it appears that's incredibly impractical. That was a stupid move because the reality is that the Babylonians are there. They're camped in there, and they're getting ready to enter the city walls. And he says, you look at it, you go, he never should have bought that. So why did he buy it? Why did he buy it? He bought it because he believes the promises of God. And what looks impractical turned out to be a pretty good investment because he made an act that connected the actions with the promises of God. And that's what hope is. Hope is acting where you connect your actions to the promises of God. And that's exactly what Jeremiah did. It was practical because he trusted God. His hope was in the strength, the strength of God's word. And yes, this is not normal. Jeremiah looked incredibly foolish, but he was involving himself in what God said he was going to do. And that's being practical. And that's living in hope. Biblical hope is buying the field of Anathoth. That's what biblical hope is. Biblical hope commits our actions to the promises of God. That's how we live in hope. We practice hope. We live inside of it by connecting our lives, our actions with his promises. The book I mentioned at the beginning of this series by, by Hellman and Gwynn on hope, and I said at the beginning, he said, I don't know where, they come, where they're coming from spiritually. I have no idea, but the stuff, but the scientific work is really excellent. Um, well, it turns out they are very strong believers. They have a whole chapter, just finished the book, and they have a whole chapter on hope and spirituality. And they want to appeal to all people, but they're very, they're very forthcoming in their personal faith. And they remind us that the Judeo-Christian scriptures are the first place in history where hope as a virtue is found. Before then, hope is ridiculed, that it causes misery. It's just, you know, it's just pie-in-the-sky stuff. But then the Judeo-Christian, the Old Testament, New Testament scriptures come along, and they say, no, hope is a virtue. Hope is a good thing. It's practical. It's good because it's connected to the promises of God. So what I want to do this morning in, in the time we have left is just kind of go through some practical things of how do we live in hope? If that's, what, if that's what God is calling us to do, to live in hope, how do we do that? How does it make it part of, a, part of our life? Well, we're going to go through about uh, four, uh, I think four, <laughs> I can't remember, four or five, uh, how to live inside of hope. First of all, we view hope as an ethic. We view it as an ethic. It goes beyond the feelings. It's a, it's a way of life. It's, uh, it's, it's a way to, to live. It's, a, it's an orientation. Hope is not trying to predict the future. It's not prognostication. It's, it's living, living in hope is an orientation, a direction of where we're going. Uh, with all the news coming on, and sometimes I think Christians are some of the worst paranoid people on, in society. 
I mean, we're always hearing things about the sky is falling. And we become incredibly fearful and, 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 uh, and, and paranoid. And we lose these points of engagements and we prefer isolation to engagement. That is not living hopeful. Living hopeful means it's a vision that inspires us to act, that we have a better story to tell, and we're afraid to tell it. We'd rather fight it. And it's almost seemed to be cool to be cynical these days, not just Christians, but everybody, that when we hear things, it's just, if, you're, you know, if you're not cynical, then you're, just, you're living in another world. You're not being practical. Your feet are floating in the air. But we should be the most hopeful people of all people. And cynical is kind of being cool. Just, just, look at, just look at social media. Now, at 65, I'm probably not the one to decide what's cool and what's not cool. In fact, <clears throat> that ship has sailed, and I'm not ever sure it was ever in the dock. But, <laughs> but I don't think that cynicism is cool. I think hope is cool. Hope where attaches our actions with the promises of God. And yes, it is countercultural, yet it is different. It is not cool to be cynical. And so we live in this hope that's an ethic, it's a, it's a moral code of how we live. It's, not just, it's, a, it's a compass that points us. Each one of these, I'm going to put a little thing up there uh, called Know Thyself, and just some suggestions of how we can apply this. And I will put them in the, in the connections letter this week, so that you, you, know, you can write them down if you want. But if they're helpful, and, uh, but I will put them in. Know thyself. Learn to take notice. Learn to take notice of when you start to slip in despair. What does that feel like? What's causing that? Take a personal inventory and notice when and why you do that. What, is the, what, is the, what are the causes of this? What are the triggers that cause you to slip into despair? And I think that's where we have to start when we start living away from hope. What is causing that? Is it bad news? Is it boredom? Is it, is it uh, depression? Just whatever it is that, that's causing you to do that, to get you off course, to remove the compass, the, uh, the moral ethic. Start with the stuff right in front of you. Uh, it's, when we get lots of bad news, the temptation is to fall into numbness, where we just get numb. Uh, this onslaught of, of news just comes on and makes us numb, makes us apathetic. And we just go, I, I don't, I can't, I can't bother it. But numbness is not a luxury we can afford. We can't afford to be that. We can't afford to be numb. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a, a story about when Fiddle on the Roof first started hitting Broadway. And um, <clears throat> they, they had been in some big trouble. People weren't attending. They didn't like it. They didn't go. There was problems in the cast and the director and, and, you know, and all, these, all these kinds of things. And they didn't know how to, how to handle this. Uh, but they got together and kind of had this staff meeting and said, what do we do from here on out? And the director said, we just do 10 things at a time. We just do 10 things today. That's all we can do. It's do the stuff that's right in front of us. We put on the makeup. We hit the stage. We do these 10 things, and that's it. And that is kind of what got them through, and, and Fiddle on the Roof is probably one of the most successful musicals in, in Broadway history. Uh, but it took out just this thing to do 10 things at a time, and that's all we do. Now, nobody can do everything, but everybody can do something. And sometimes that one thing may be for you to pull back a little bit for rest. That may be true in, in times of your life. But that is so you can rejuvenate yourself 
to serve again, to be involved again, to get engaged again. So what do we need to know? Know thyself. What causes you to numb out? What causes you to be empathetic? What are the circumstances? And what are your go-to numbing behaviors? Is it binge eating? Is it binge watching? Is it uh, not getting out of bed? Is it just laying in the sun? Whatever it is, what is it? What are your go-to numbing behaviors? And be sure you try to recognize what those are. And then list some things that you can do to move forward. And I, and I have to tell you that I can numb out pretty easily, especially in the morning. I get up early, not because I always joke about, yeah, I get up about 4.30 or 5. I run my five miles and have my two hours of prayer, and then we're good to go. That's not true. I, I get up early just because it's my body clock. It always has been since I was a kid. I don't know why I do that. But, uh, and I would grab my iPad or something in the morning and then get caught up reading just junk on there. And I know that's a numbing behavior for me, that I get caught up watching YouTube videos or just reading articles or just reading nothing, just nothing. That is a numbing activity for me. And I'm so thankful <coughs> that the weather is getting warmer, <coughs> excuse me, because I love getting out in the morning on my front porch. And for some reason or other, that takes me out of that numbness. I don't know why, but it does. <coughs> so I get up in the morning, <coughs> Sorry. And I get out on the porch, and that helps my numbness. But I know what my trigger is. I know that, that, that iPad, that, that, that newspaper or whatever it is, not paper anymore, uh, the, the videos, those are things that make, me, that make me numb. And when I'm doing an hour, hour and a half on that, I've slipped in. I know I've slipped in. And so I need to recognize that and make something list that can make me move forward. And for right now, it's getting out on the front porch with a cup of coffee. That helps. Search for stability. When you've gone through trauma, when you've gone through something, sometimes you feel like you're just floating around. You don't even know where you are. And, or sometimes you just you can't move or you feel like the ground is shifting, shifting under you and you don't know what to do about it. <clears throat> when we came back, we came back from, from the mission field because uh, my mother-in-law got cancer. And my wife had just recently lost her brother to a heart attack. And then my mother-in-law gets cancer. And then nine months later, her dad dies in a car accident. So she had all those losses crammed in just a few years. So when we moved back, she also lost her ministry, her purpose. Her daughter, our daughter, had just gone off to college and lost her there, and not, at least not present anyway. And, oh, thank you, Aaron. <laughs> Appreciate that. This doesn't happen very often. Yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> so <clears throat> she was going through a lot of losses at this time. And a um, little bit of shaky ground and all that. And uh, we have a really, really good friend who's a counselor there in Iowa. And she developed a friendship with her. And so Sue started, started meeting with her. And she has her do these exercises of putting your feet flat on the ground, <clears throat> sitting down, feeling the ground, feeling the earth, breathing slowly, and repeating a prayer. You know, a simple prayer over and over again, just to feel the stability. And she said it really, really was helpful. Well, I was just happened to be doing some, <clears throat> some other research in the Old Testament. And did you know that the, um, the oldest use, the oldest name of God used in history is not Yahweh or Elohim, 
It's Hamakom, which means the place. And I didn't know this till recently. I was, I was just reading something, and this kind of was, was, I can say it was a coincidence, but I think it was a God thing, who just led me from place to place. And evidently, the Jews said this was the oldest name we have for God. Why? Because it starts off in Genesis 1, and when God is gathering the waters and things, he says he gathered them in the place. And then you go through the story in Abraham and Jacob, and everything is about the place. Jacob sees God in the place. And it became sort of shorthand to refer to God as the place. And they say that, that it was supposed to refer to his omnipresence, but it has to do with everything in the universe. And he says, we lay on the ground because he is the, the ground. He is the great trustworthy. He is the place. He is the ground we stand on. He's the ground that we, we curl our toes into so we can feel the roots going down into him. And we feel what's reliable. And that's the place. And he says, search for stability here. Search for the place, however you do it, whether you want to do that exercise. I have tried it myself, and it is, it's really weird how well it works. Just feeling the solid ground underneath your feet and curling your toes in and imagining the roots going down into the place. The place. Know yourself. What or who is stable in your life right now? Is there a person who is stable in your life? Or what is stable in your in life? Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, a job. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's a spouse. Whatever it is, a child. Who or who is stable in your life? Identify who that is, what that is. And what or who can be trusted? And your answer may be alarmingly small, but it's probably just enough for today. You're sitting in a chair this morning, and maybe that is enough, at least for today that it's stable, that you're there. Number four, return to basic soul care. Hope transcends optimism. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. It goes beyond optimism. I mean, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's not known as the weeping prophet for nothing. He wasn't always optimistic, but he was always hopeful. But sometimes that happens where our goals have to change and we, because there's no pathway to the goal we want. And so we change that, but we have that compass that always points us to hope. We always have that compass to live by, that ethic, that ethos, that way, the way of life. And you think, what is the right thing for us to do? Uh, and it may not be something very glorious. It could be maybe something that's unglorious. It, but you need to do it. It may be something as simple as putting spaghetti water on the stove, but you need to do it. It may be something that's just spending five minutes in prayer a day, just something that you need to do. And, and uh, sometimes you may need to find a lifeline to something or someone. It may be a ritual that you've practiced in the past. It may be a, a prayer that you've recited as a child. It could be a person. You would tie yourself to a lifeline if you need to. It may be just reading the Psalms. For me, it's reading the Gospels. Tie yourself to the lifeline. Another thing I learned in Iowa about the snow is that the farmers, I had a friend, a colleague who uh, grew up there, his family grew up there, and he talks about how there's so much mental illness in his family because people literally went crazy in the farmhouses in the snow because they were locked in so much. And he talked about people riding, uh, tying a, a, a lifeline from their house to the barn or something like that so they wouldn't get lost and they could use that rope to find the barn, use the rope to find their way back to the house. 
There's tons of folklore in that area about how snow, about snow, snow, uh, snow storms. See, I see Chuck nodding his head. <laughs> yes, there are. Tie a lifeline if you need a lifeline to something. Uh, and, and then create life somewhere, somehow, with someone else. Create life uh, with, with a, a, a friend or a partner. So know thyself. What are some tangible actions that need to get done? even if they're unglorious, even if they're not, even if they seem mundane. What tangible actions have you used in the past to get through the dark winter? When one sparks an interest right now, how can you remember to practice it? So what are some practices that have sparked a light for you in the past? For me, it is reading the Gospels. For me, it is sometimes sitting in silence for 20 minutes. And I have to remember to go back to those things to do them. And what I've done now the, with the phones, it's amazing. I can put it in my phone or my computer and get this reminder and say, you know, it's time for silence. Uh, maybe you pray the daily office or something. That's where you people pray in morning, noon, and afternoon. But go back to those things that you, you knew worked before and go back to them and see, how they, and, and see if they don't really tie you into your spiritual life. And finally, keep reminding yourself of the three essentials of thriving hope. Beauty, relationships, and action. Those three things are the most important things for maintaining hope. Beauty, whether it's creation or whether it's art or music, whatever it is, it's beautiful. This place was here before we got here. It will be here after we leave. Notice it. Put beauty into your life. Um, connect to the, to the color, to the context, to the meaning. Um, one of the best advice I ever got was, if, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. And I didn't say, or he didn't say, make it good or make it pretty. He said, if it can't be happy, make it beautiful. And a couple of examples. I went right in the middle of the ep epidemic and right in the middle and everything was shut down. This interactive experience of Van Gogh came to Portland, and Sue's been wanting to see it, and uh, they were very, very strict about their protocol. We had to still wear a mask. You had to buy tickets at a certain time because they'd only let certain people in, and it was these Van Gogh paintings that were moving on the walls, and it was just incredible, and in the middle of this pandemic, when I was totally stressed out about whether the church was going to survive or not, and uh, whether we were going to still, still be meeting together, and, uh, and Sue still says, it's amazing that our marriage still survived that. But, <laughs> and I believe, and that's true. We went to that, and for some reason it was so relaxing because it was so beautiful. And even I, who don't know, doesn't know anything about art, was just taken aback, just connecting. Recently I read a story about a man who died and um, donated his heart. And the recipient of that heart was another, was another man across the country. Right after the first guy died, his, his daughter was getting married, and she didn't have anybody to walk her down the aisle. And so she, took, she went looking for this, the recipient of her father's heart and asked him if he would walk her down the aisle, and he did. And that, to me, that has taken a sad, sad moment and making it beautiful. And he made it made it beautiful. Relationships. We've got to do relationships. If we neglect that, relationships, 
If we neglect other people, the people just become doing machines and not human beings. We cannot neglect the relationships. I wrote in the Connections letter this last week about the advisory from the Surgeon General uh, Murthy, who was talking about how serious loneliness is in our country and the COVID just, uh, just accelerated everything and how it affects, it raises your cortisol, which is a stress hormone. It can cause physical damage, emotional damage. It leads to depression. It is so important. We cannot deny the relationships. And, it's, and Christianity has this paradox that if you serve, you feel better. If you serve someone else, you feel better about it. It helps you in your health. Uh, I mentioned this also. Uh, Sue and I just watched The Man Called Otto. It's actually based on a book by Bachman, which is one of our favorite authors these days, uh, who wrote A Man Called Over. I think it's pronounced Uva or something like that. And we watched the original film about that and thought, eh, we don't want to see the American version. But finally we did, and we're so glad we did because it's, it fits the American culture. And this curmudgeon who lost his wife, who's, who was injured in an accident, just re retreated into himself, and he was finally brought out by a neighbor to do kind things, to do service things. And by the end of the movie, he was this just warm, uh, wonderful human being because he acted on serving and he was no longer alone. It is so important that we don't forget that. And finally, the action, by the field. By the field at Anathoth. By the field, that's what it's all about. It's... Um, no neglect the action. When we do that, when we neglect acting, we end up fretting, we end up complaining, we end up yelling, and, and just not doing what is ours to do. And despair seeps in, and despair is so much easier. It's easier I don't have to risk my reputation. It's easy because I can lay around. It's easy because I can look at my iPad and read junk and, not, and waste time. It's so much easier but it takes a toll on our spirit, and it takes a toll on our heart. And living in, living in hope means we buy the field. If you live long enough, you will have your heart broken. No doubt about it. But Hebrews tells us that we are to run the race with our eyes focused on Jesus. He is our pattern. We run the race. And maybe we wish the terrain was better or different. Maybe we wish the terrain was less treacherous and less painful. But the race is ours to run. And we have to run it. It is ours to run. You buy the field. It is a deliberate act of hope. Jeremiah was not just buying a piece of real estate. He was buying in to what he said he believed. And that's how we, that's how we live in hope. We buy in to what we say we believe. And that's how we live in hope. When Jeremiah bought that property, he made God's word visible. And that's what this action does. We make God's promises visible, tangible, concrete. It's hardly ever spectacular. I mean, if you were listening to Scott reading that story about buying a field, okay, he did six, seventeen shekels of silver. Yeah, but what's the big deal about buying a field? This was the cornerstone of Jeremiah's faith. Not something spectacular. He just bought in to what he believed. It didn't look that particularly significant, but he had the courage to act in hope. And that's how you live in it.
That's how you live in it. You buy in with what you believe, and you make God's promises visible. That's it. Biblical hope is simply buying the field in Anathope. That's all it is. Hope commits the actions with the promises of God and connects them together, and we live in it. That's it. That's it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of of Jeremiah that seems insignificant, that seems mundane. Um, But we ask that you show us where to act. Show us how to make things beautiful out of things that are sad. Father, help us to build the friendships and relationships we need so that we don't just see people as doing machines. We see them as your children. In the name of Jesus, amen.